Good morning. Okay, I want you to imagine that you have a friend from another country who's coming to visit you. And imagine that friend is from a less developed country, so they really haven't watched TV or watched movies or anything like that. Okay, so you have your friend who's a foreigner to the U.S. who comes here and they're not familiar with our entertainment and our technology or anything like that, but they're going to stay with you for a little while. And I want you to imagine that during the time they're staying with you, you decide that you're going to take them to a Star Wars convention, okay? So one thing you realize is if you take them to a Star Wars convention, considering the life they've lived up to this point, they're not going to know what's going on, right? So how would you prepare them so that they could go to the Star Wars convention and at least have some understanding of what's going on? How would you prepare them? Okay, yeah, so I think step one for a lot of you would be, well, we'd watch the movies, right? Watch the third movie? That's, all the, that's the only one you need? Okay. So, oh, the, th- the three in the middle, which is interesting, which is interesting. Anyone have a different opinion than that? Because if you, yeah, you do. See, so you might say, well, well, we'll just watch the movies and that's how I'll prepare them. But which one do you start with? All right. He thinks a different starting point than she does, right? So, what, so do, you, do you watch four, five, six, then one, two, three, then seven, eight, nine? Because that's the order that they came out. But if you do that, then you're going to have to explain some things like, well, these movies came before these movies and there's this thing called a prequel. What's a prequel? Well, it's the, so, you know, and so you're going to have to explain, you're going to have to answer questions, right? Well, where's Luke Skywalker? Oh, he's not born yet. What do you mean he's not born yet? We watched three movies that he was in. How is he not born yet? Oh, these are before those movies. Oh, these came before? Well, I mean, they came after, but they're before those movies. So if you do four, five, six, one, two, three, seven, eight, nine, you have that problem that you've got to explain it out of order. But if you go... One, two, three, like my gentleman in the front here is thinking, right? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. You don't have the chronology problem, but you will have the problem of, and this is just my opinion, you get to movie number three, and movie number three, the way it ends, um, is supposed to make you go like, oh, right? But the only reason that you go, oh, at the end of number three is if you know what happens in movie number four. That guy putting on a black mask wouldn't mean anything to you if you didn't know what happened in four, five, and six. But because you do, you go, oh, I can't believe that's how it happened. Okay? So where are you going to start? What kind of, you're going you're to have to use certain terminology like prequels and originals and new ones. And then even once you've decided what order you're going to watch them in, and let's say you watch them all in whatever the right order is, you're going to have to explain to them some other stuff too. Because if you went to a Star Wars convention like nowadays... There's going to be Baby Yoda stuff everywhere, right? And there's going to be Baby Yoda stuff, and, and, your, and your friend who you prepared for this is going to go, what is all this? There was no baby. There was, he was old. Yoda was old, and he didn't even have a wife. How did he have a baby? What is this? And you're going to have to go, oh, okay, well, there's like the movies, and then there's these spinoff things that are also part of the Star Wars universe, right? And so then you're going to explain, well, there's a movie called Rogue One, right? And that movie came out between seven and eight, but it takes place between three and four, right? And then Mandalorian is this TV show that's still coming out now. So in this sense, you could say like it's coming out after movie number nine, but it takes place between movie number six and seven. And so and you, maybe you're going to have to explain the lightsabers or the force or something like that. But as I'm talking about this, I think you're realizing it would actually take a lot of work to prepare a foreigner to go to a Star Wars convention and understand it. It would take hours. It would take multiple conversations. There's a lot of stuff that would have to be explained in order to make sense of it. And so today, as we continue our series, How to Read the Bible, 
I would like to give you an Old Testament survey, okay? A survey through the Old Testament. I want to get you ready to go to the Old Testament convention, right? I want, I want you to be able to, sh to show up at the Old Testament and prepare you to be able to read it for yourself with as much understanding as possible. So um, here is our outline for this series, not the sermon outline, but the series. Two weeks ago, we began how to read your Bible with translation, and we talked about how we got what we have, like how we got from Hebrew and Greek into English. And then we talked about interpretation, and what do we do with the English words when they're on the page, and how do we interpret them? And so today, I wanted to move on to Old Testament, and as we kind of do an overview of the Old Testament, hopefully it'll be something that then when you show up to the Old Testament, even if there's some, there's some things that you go, well, this would have been difficult had I known nothing, but it's not as difficult because I walked into it knowing something. Because there actually are a number of parallels between understanding the Star Wars movies and the Star Wars universe and understanding the Old Testament. Um, I just wrote down, I wrote down two of them. There's probably a bunch, but I wrote down two here before we even get into the main content. The books of the Bible are not in chronological order just like the Star Wars movies were not, did not come out in chronological order. I don't know if you know that, but now you do. It's true of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. The books are not in there in chronological order. So if you get to the part that uh, Doug was talking about earlier, okay, so there's a part where it goes Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job. And you might think that if it's Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, that you have the story called Esther that's about this woman named Esther, which is correct. And then that's followed by this story called Job about a guy named Job. That's also correct. And you might think Job comes after, it's the next story after Esther. And if you believe that, you would be wrong because Job does not come after Esther, even though Job comes after Esther in the order of the books. But Job actually happened before Esther. In fact, Job actually happened, as best as we can tell, way before Esther. Job is one of the earliest things in the Bible. Probably 95% of the Old Testament happens after Job's story, and probably about 95% of the Old Testament happens before Esther's story. So they're almost as far apart as they possibly could be. But when you find them in the Bible, they're next to each other and the other way around. Why is that? I'll explain. But for now, you need to know that the books of the Bible are not in chronological order, just like you watch the Star Wars movie out of order, and if you ever get to the point, you go, well, I don't understand why the Bible did this. Well, I haven't, I've hardly heard anybody whining about that with Star Wars. They just got over it and realized this happened before this. Okay, there's another thing that there's a similarity, and that is um, in the Star Wars movies, there is a main storyline, and then there are the spinoffs. The main storyline of the nine movies um, is called the Skywalker Saga. I don't know if you knew that, but it, I looked it up. Okay, Wikipedia says so. That's what they call the nine movies when you put them all together as a collection. The, it's the movies about the Skywalkers. But then there's spin-offs like the movie Solo that's not part of the Skywalker Saga. And I would say the Bible does the very same thing. If you go to the Old Testament, and if the Old Testament books were made into movies, I would say that the book of Judges would be in the main storyline. That would be part of the Old Testament saga, the Yahweh saga. The book of Judges would be in there. Judges is the time period. Like The, the book of Judges is about what happens um, in the history of Israel between the time period where they go and conquer the promised land and live in it and the time period where they have kings. In between those two time periods is this hundreds of years where they have judges. So if you had the main you know, Old Testament saga, main storyline, Judges would be part of the main storyline. The book of Ruth, however, would be a spinoff. Ruth would be a smaller story that took place during the time period of the Judges. So just like there is a bunch of information that would make a Star Wars convention more understandable for someone, I would like to give you this morning a bunch of information about the Old Testament in order to help you understand it as you go to approach it, or in some cases as you go to approach it again. 
So with all of that as our introduction, let's talk about what we're going to learn about today. All right, this is the outline for today's sermon. I want to talk to you about the books of the Old Testament, the categories of the books of the Old Testament, the chronological order of the books, the historical storyline, and the theological storyline. Those are the five things that we're going to cover. Let's start with the books of the Old Testament. And this is the list of the books. The, the Old Testament is made up of 39 separate ancient documents, and they are, have names like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, going all the way to Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Um, these are the 39 books you will find pretty much in any Bible that you purchase. They will be in this order. Like if you go to your table of context, contents, these are the books you will find in any English Bible in this order every single time. So those are the books of the Bible. Now let's go ahead and go through them by category because not all of these books are the same. There's, remember how we talked about last week? There's different genres of literature in the Bible. So let's start with the first five. Okay? The first five books in the Bible are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and they are their own that's, they are their own little collection, these five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are known as the law. Um, I say that they're known as the law. I think that the reason I'm giving you that particular name and the reason I'm holding these five books out as their own is I think that when you get to the New Testament, the New Testament refers back to this section of the Old Testament as the law. There's a place in Galatians that I can think of where Paul says, um, you know, do you want to know what the law says? And then he quotes from the book of Genesis, which you don't even think of Genesis as a law book if you're familiar with Genesis, and yet I think he calls Genesis the law because Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy is the law in the New Testament. It's also known as the Torah. If you've ever heard anybody talk about the Torah, they're talking about these same five books. Don't let that confuse you. It's another name for the same thing. In fact, Torah just means law in another language, okay? So law is the Torah. Sometimes it's also called the Pentateuch, so I threw that in there for you just so you know. I don't remember, I don't know when Pentateuch started, but just... The, Penta means five, like a pentagon has five sides. Pentateuch is just a word that somehow, I don't remember when it started, but it meant the five books, okay? The first five books of the Bible are the law, the Torah, the Pentateuch, or sometimes they're just affiliated with Moses, called like the books of Moses or Moses. Um, there's a place in the book of Luke where Luke is telling the story about Jesus, and Jesus is teaching um, two of his disciples the, the Old Testament, and it says that he was teaching them the scriptures, and he decided to teach what the scriptures said beginning with Moses. Well, what does that mean, beginning with Moses? I think it means beginning with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. This collection is the one he started with when he started teaching them. So the next uh, set of books after the first five are Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And this collection of books, I'm going to call it the other history. The reason I'm using the word history is because that's what it is. These are history books. These are historical documents giving you like the, the history of Israel. This is what happened, and then this is what happened next, and this is what happened next. So we have the history of Israel in these books. But the reason I say other history, because sometimes people call these the historical books, but, but I think the problem with that is I think we need to call these other history because this is history too. Like this is also the story of the people from Genesis to Deuteronomy. And so really together, these are all the historical books so I teach you them in two categories, just because law is sometimes treated as its own separate thing. But for our purposes in this series, to kind of simplify things, I'm just going to put this all together as one group. Okay? These, this is the history portion of the Old Testament. Genesis through Esther is the storyline of what happens, starting with the creation of the world, going all the way to where, um, where the Old Testament ends. Now, after you have the history books, you have a whole other genre. You have a whole other section. And it's Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. They're the next five. And this is the poetry. These are the poet, poetical books of the Old Testament. 
And this answers the question, why in the world does Job come after Esther if Job happened way before Esther? And the answer is because Esther is the final book in a particular collection of books, and Job is the first book in a different collection of books. And those two collections got put together, but that causes the final one of this one to be right up against the first one of this one. Make sense? Job is a poetical book. In the original Hebrew, I don't know it, but apparently in the way that it's structured, it's this epic poem about this guy's life, Job. Um, Psalms are poetry. That's really obvious for any of you that have read them. Psalms are the Israelite songbook, the Hebrew hymn book. These were their songs. They probably had a lot of them memorized, but somebody wrote them down and put them somewhere, and the somewhere is the book of Psalms. Um, These books are also referred to as the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. And there might be some, I don't know if all five of them are, there might be some people that debate and say Psalms is not part of wisdom literature. I don't think that matters for the sermon. Point is, these are the five poetry books, and many of them, or all of them, could be considered the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. That's where Proverbs come in. Not only is Proverbs written in a poetic way, um, Proverbs is the wisdom book of the Old Testament. It's the main, primary, major wisdom book. And it's the book that, if you've been attending church here this year, it would be the one that you've heard the most about recently. We have spent, uh, we spent a number of weeks. I don't remember, how long was that series? 28 weeks, I think? We spent a long time on the book of Proverbs talking about the wisdom that's in the Old Testament. Ecclesiastes is similar to Proverbs in that it's a wisdom book, um, but much darker, much more negative if you've ever read it. We did a series on Ecclesiastes here a few years ago. Remember, like we barely survived? Um, so <laughs> Proverbs in, in comparison to Ecclesiastes is a much chipper, much more chipper book. Uh, Proverbs kind of has this feel to it of like there's this God and he created this world and there's a particular way that it works and if you know this God and you know his ways, you can navigate the ways of this world and your life will go well, you know? And you read Proverbs and you go, that's great. And then you get to Ecclesiastes and they're like, not always. (laughs) Ecclesiastes comes along and says, no, sometimes you just, you try your best and it's not going to work and sometimes the world is not just and sometimes things are bad and sometimes you, like, that you could have somebody who is, is so wise and does all the right things and then someone who's completely foolish and does all the right, wrong things and the same chariot comes along and <laughs> squishes them both and it didn't even matter whether you were wise or a fool. And, and Song of Solomon, you I know, mean, Ecclesiastes seems to talk quite a bit about like this world under the sun and it seems to be saying like, if there is no God, then there's something wrong with this world that even wisdom can't fix. But if there is a God out there, then there is, there is purpose and there is meaning. There, apart from God, there is no purpose, there is no meaning, there is no, you know, nothing matters. But, but if there is a God, then it does matter how we live. So Ecclesiastes is like Proverbs' evil twin. I mean, not that it's an evil book, but just it's a much darker, more negative wisdom book. And then Song of Solomon is a love poem, and so that's why it's in the poetry section. Okay? Then the next section of books is Isaiah through Malachi. And Isaiah through Malachi, we're gonna, I'm going to call these the prophecies. The reason why is they're prophecies. Isaiah through Malachi are the prophecies, and sometimes these are called the prophets because most of these prophecies are named after the prophet that wrote them. I think Lamentations is the only exception. Um, but they are prophets that wrote these books that are prophecies. And sometimes you will even find people that will break them up into two categories, major prophets and minor prophets. I'm not going to do that because I don't see the point. Um, but, but for the people that do that, just so you know, the reason for that is the major prophets wrote the bigger books and the minor prophets wrote the little, little books. So if the guy wrote a 50-page book or a five-page book, that's kind of what determined whether it was a major prophet or a minor prophet. But as far as genre goes, these all go together. These are all the prophecies. And I'm putting them, this is a little bit of an oversimplification, we're putting them into these three categories with the understanding that sometimes you'll find a little bit of one of the category inside of one of the other ones. So there's, there's some poetry some, and some history in the prophecies. 
the book of Daniel has some history in it, talking about what was happening in Babylon at the time. Uh, the book of Habakkuk, I remember when we preached through it here, um, there's a section in there that has this whole, there's this whole section, and then it says, this is to be done, played with stringed instruments. And you realize, like, oh, this is a poem. This is a song that we're reading right here. So there is some poetry in the prophecies. There's some history in the prophecies. But in general, if you're trying to simplify the Old Testament into three categories, three types of literature, this is what the Old Testament is made of. History, poetry, and prophecy. So this is why they're in the order they're in. But even if you were to zoom in and go, well, why are all of these in the order that they're in? They're not all in perfectly chronological order either, even as they are in the three categories. So let's go ahead and talk about now the, the chronology, okay? the order of the books. I'm going to start with the first five. The first five books in the Bible are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And those five books are roughly in chronological order as they are. They cover the time period from God creating the world all the way into the time period where the people of Israel um, are about to go into this land called the Promised Land. It was promised back in Genesis. And Moses, their leader, dies, and they're about to go into the Promised Land, and Moses died, and that's, that's the time period that happens here. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The next book is Joshua. Joshua is the guy who takes over after Moses, is the leader of Israel, and he leads them into the Promised Land, and they conquer the Promised Land and make it their own. That's the time period of Joshua. Judges, we already talked about, which is after the time period of Joshua, as after they've gotten into the land, there's a period of judges who rule over Israel. They are called judges because, I don't know, it seems to me they're sort of an informal, like, rulers over the people. They're more like governors than like kings. They're not called kings. They, the, the people in Israel kind of get into trouble and they sin and then some nation will come and attack them or capture them or harm them and then God raises up a leader <clears throat> and the leader rescues them and that's the person who's leader over Israel for a while and so those people were called judges. So they're, they're people who rule over Israel but they don't quite have the prestige of kings like with palaces and all that sort of thing. So that's the judges period. Then you move into the time period where you would have kings but here's interesting. The next two books are Ruth and First and Second Samuel. So... Ruth, as we already talked about, is not really the, thing, the, the link between Judges and 1 Samuel. Ruth is the book that's in between them, but as best as we can tell, Ruth does not happen in between them. Ruth happens during the time period of Judges. Well, how do you know that, Mario? I know that because the Bible tells me so. Ruth, chapter 1, if you turn to it and you were to read the very first sentence of the book of Ruth, it says, During the time of the Judges, there was a famine in the land. A man left Bethlehem and Judah with his wife and two sons, blah, 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 rest of the story. Okay, fantastic book. But it starts off by saying during the time period of the judges. So we know that, I don't know if it happened at the beginning of that time period, the end of that time period, but Ruth is not the, the, the bridge between Judges and 1 Samuel. It's something that happened during the time period of Judges. So let's go ahead and fix her. All right, boom, got her in the right spot. But in moving her to the right spot, we got a problem because now it looks like there's a bunch of years in between Judges and 1 Samuel, right? Were there? Not that I can tell, so let's scoot those people over. Because you got 1 Samuel and Judges, and as, as best as I can tell, 1 Samuel starts with talking about this guy named Samuel, which you'd imagine, that's not a big surprise. And Samuel, it seems to me, is the final judge. Okay, So this is in the time period of the judges. Samuel, I think, is the last judge, and he's the judge that anoints the first king. So the transition period from judges into kings is 1 Samuel. And the first king is Saul, and the reign of King Saul is talked about in 1 Samuel. So the first king of Israel, and don't let it throw you off, there's a book coming later called 1 Kings. Not about the first king, though. The first king is actually in 1 Samuel, all right? That's Saul. Then the book of 2 Samuel is about the second king of Israel, okay? David. 
Now, there's also a book coming up called Second Kings, but that one's not about David. Okay, Sec- the Second King is actually in Second Samuel. Okay, so we got the First King and the Second King, and then you get to the book called First Kings, which starts with the Third King. All right. So Saul, <laughs> David, and then Solomon is the main, is the is the king that is talked about at the beginning of First Kings. He's the third in line over Israel. And um, toward the, uh, right after Solomon's reign, there is a, a splitting of the kingdom. And so there are, a, there are double the number of kings from that point on because there's two kingdoms. So the, Israel splits into two nations, one that retains the name Israel and one that has the name Judah. And so you've got the kings of Judah and you've got the kings of Israel, and they are talked about in First and Second Kings. So First Kings talks about Solomon and the kings that came after him. Second Kings talks about the kings that came after the kings that came after Solomon. Then you get to... First and Second Chronicles, and you have another chronology problem because First and Second Chronicles does not happen after First and Second Kings. Well, what is it? Well, I looked through it this week, and it seems to me First Chronicles chronicles the reign of King David. Well, that happened in Second Samuel, so we got to fix that one, all right? So First Chronicles is happening here. It's another telling of the reign of King David, and Second Chronicles seems to me it roughly begins right around when First Kings begins and ends right around where 2 Kings leaves off in the story. And so 2 Chronicles is there. So we've got 2 Samuel and another version of David's rule in 1 Chronicles, and then we've got all this time period with these kings, and we've got another accounting of that called 2 Chronicles. Now, if at this point you go, well, why do they do that? Why has the Bible got to be so confusing, giving us, I mean, you're seriously telling me that the Old Testament says stuff, and then there's another book that's about that same stuff all over again? Yes. Well, why do they do that? That's dumb. Well, here's the thing. You don't feel that way about anything else in the world. I've never heard anyone in my life go, why are there two books about the Civil War? That's stupid, right? No, you're very aware that there are thousands of books that have been written about that period of time, right? And so in the, uh, in the Old Testament, we have two different accountings of the reign of David, and we have two different chroniclings of the time period of all these kings, so then, what's the next book after 2 Chronicles? Anybody know by heart? Ezra, great job. But here's the problem with Ezra. Ezra does not happen right there, because we do not have enough space in between here, because what this looks like, the way we've got it set out, is that right after 2 Kings, Ezra happens. But that's not true. Because 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles end with the bad guys coming in and conquering the Jews. Okay, Israel gets really squashed at the end. Lots of the people die, and many of the people who do not die are taken into captivity. They're taken into this period of time called the exile. So all these Israelites are now in some other nation, not in their homeland, living in exile. And when you get to Ezra, that story basically begins with um, the exile's almost over, and now we're all heading back home to rebuild our homeland. So you can't just go from we got conquered to we're going back home. What, what, what happened in between there? What happened in between there was 70 years where they were not living in their homeland, and they were in exile. So we got to put that in there. So, boom, we got it. Israel in exile. So we've got Second Kings, Second Chronicles. The, the people of Israel get conquered. Now they're living in a different country, and the name of that country changes over time because nations conquer other nations. You know that, right? So um, in, toward the beginning part of this exile, the Babylonians are the people who are in charge, and that's where you have some, like sometimes the, the Israelites are living in Babylon among those people rather than living in their homeland. But as time goes on, Persia comes in and takes over the Babylonians, and so you also have stories in this time period where the Israelites live among the Persians. And then it's during the Persian rule that Ezra is finally able to head back home and start rebuilding Israel. 
So that's what we have here. So then, like I said, I think this is about 70 years. After Ezra is Nehemiah, and Nehemiah continues the story of Ezra. If I remember them correctly, I think Ezra's concern is rebuilding the temple, and Nehemiah's uh, concern is rebuilding the walls, like militarily for the people in Israel. And then after Nehemiah is, anybody know? Esther, and Esther does not take place after Nehemiah. As best as I can tell, Esther takes place probably maybe toward the beginning of the story of Ezra. During the story of Esther, you have the Persians in charge, right? So it's toward the end, like toward the latter half of the exile. The Persians are the people who are the world power. There are Jewish people living among them, if you remember the story. And there's this Hitler-like character named Haman who is trying to kill all of the Jewish people in the Persian Empire. And the story of Esther is the story of how God preserves them and saves them all. And it seems like it happens maybe right around the same time that the book of Ezra describes people going back to rebuild Israel. And that is the chronological um, order of the historical books. Now we've got to add in the other books, though, because we've got two genres to go, don't we? So we've got Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. So we'll start with Job. Um, oops, go back one. We'll start with Job. So Job takes place way over here in Genesis. I already alluded to that earlier. We don't know it for sure, but if you, just, if you read the book of Job and if you're aware of Old Testament history, it sure seems like Job is a very early story written in a very primitive way. That uh, Job's wealth is described like is measured in animals more so than like gold and silver. Job lives a very long time, and there are time periods early on in Genesis where people are living really, really long periods of time, but then after that, like it's, so people start living like normal amounts of time like we're used to, so Job seems to be in a period of time where people were living long, um, in a period of time where things were more primitive. There seems to be no understanding of Job that there is this God that has a covenant with a particular people, Israel, temple, sacrifices, laws, rescued from Egypt, none of that stuff. So Job probably takes place around the time of Abraham. And Job is um, a wisdom book in that it not only does it tell us the story of some guy named Job during Genesis, but it answers the question, like, why do uh, bad things happen to good people? What do we do with suffering in this world? The next um, book in the poetry section is Psalms. And Psalm, the, so, there's a lot of different Psalms. They're all different songs. They were written at all different times by different people. So it'd probably be hard to find one spot on here to put them on here. But I would say David is the primary author of Psalms. He wrote, I don't know, maybe half of them. So I'm just going to go ahead and put Psalms right here during the time period that David was the ruler. But hopefully you'll understand. There might be some of those songs that he wrote before he was king. There might be some of those songs that were written by other people after he was king. But probably the majority of them we can put right here. Same goes for Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Those are all connected to the rule of Solomon in 1 Kings. Then you have the prophecies. The prophets with the exception of, I think, five of them, pretty much all prophesied during this period of time. There were prophets earlier on, like Nathan and Elijah and Elisha, but the prophets that wrote stuff down so that we have books almost wrote all of their stuff down related to this time period of 2 Kings. So you have all of these kings that are doing these things. In many cases, the kings were not good and the prophets were having to tell them things like, stop doing that. We should all stop sinning. We should start caring about the poor. We should start, we, um, we've been captured or we're going to get captured, but God is going to rescue us, but we need to repent. Like all sorts of things like that um, come up in almost all the books of the prophets. The exceptions would be Daniel and Ezekiel. Those seem to be books that are related to the exile period. Okay. 
So, and, and in fact, I told you earlier, Daniel has some history in it. We can know some of the stuff that happened during the exile because Daniel tells us what happened to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they were thrown in the fire and what happened to Daniel when he was you know, thrown in the lion's den. And so we have some of that history even in these prophecy books during that period of time. Then you have um, Haggai and Zechariah during the time period of Ezra. I don't know much about Zechariah. It's been a while since I've read it. Um, I preached at a Haggai two Christmases ago, and I remember... Um, it's Haggai is talking to the people about like instead of just rebuilding your homes, you need to rebuild the temple. And the rebuilding of the temple is the same thing that Ezra was concerned about. It was this time period. And then the final prophet in the Old Testament is Malachi, and he was a contemporary of Nehemiah, which then ends the Old Testament. Right? That is the chronological order of the books of the Old Testament. Isn't that exciting? Whew, this was a lot to fit into one Sunday. Okay, so here's the historical timeline. What happens during this time? What is the plot line of the Old Testament? As far as history goes, here's the story. Um, God creates the world. That's the beginning, Genesis. God creates the world. Um, God calls out a particular nation. And where you think that starts, you know, can be, it depends on what you want to consider a nation. In one sense, you could say God calls out a particular nation to be his own when he says to Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. So there's a nation of people that God has said, you're going to be my people, and he picks them really before they exist. And he says to Abraham, one day you're going to have these descendants, and they're going to be my people, right? And so, so God calls out a particular nation. By the time they are actually nation-like, they are captured in Egypt. And so Exodus begins there, with God actually calling out the actual nation of Israel from Egypt, and he sends Moses as the deliverer, and Moses delivers them from Egypt and takes them um, right up to the promised land which we have promised land now here, end of Deuteronomy, now Joshua. So Moses is the significant Bible character in this section right here. And so he takes the people um, to the land. Now we've got the period of time where the judges rule, followed by the period of time where the kings rule. And so you have this nation that is there that is established. And that nation has laws that God has given them that go back all the way to here. And so they, they know what it is that God requires of them. They have religious rituals that they are to be doing. There's a temple, there's priests. They don't understand we're supposed to celebrate Passover or this is what we're supposed to do for sins. That this, that there's a time where we take this goat and we slaughter it and we take this goat and we send it out into the wilderness and this is all related to how we handle our sins. And they've got, you know, this is how you do the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Weeks or how you handle Sabbath. During this time period, they are also given wisdom from God, okay, especially during Solomon's time and after, right? That they're given the wisdom of God so that they know not just do this and do that, but just principles for like how to operate in the world and how to live in God's world. And then um, they have prophets that give specific revelation to them, like God's going to take care of us through this such and such, or God has upset at us about this and we really need to stop doing it. Um, or God's going to do this in the future, or whatever it may be. And they've got like revelation from these prophets during this time period. Um, and for the most part, throughout this history, they are mostly unfaithful. And not constantly, it's hit or miss. There are times when there are good kings. There are times when there were good people that were faithful to God. But for the most part, there was a lot of unfaithfulness. There was a lot of not listening to God. There was a lot of people doing things their own way. You see that a lot in the book of Judges, that people just did whatever they wanted, and then the people would cry out to God when it caught them in trouble. And then a judge would, would be raised up and would rescue the people, only for that cycle to happen over and over and over again. 
and then you have this time period of kings, but same thing, you have um, a lot of unfaithfulness during this time, a lot of failure, a lot of not following God, not constantly. If you read through it, some of the kings were good, but in my memory, and if you've read through these, you may know, it seems like most of the kings were bad, with just here and there a faithful king. But for the most part, the people were not good, the kings were not good, and, and the people were unfaithful, and they did not listen to God, and God allowed them to be conquered by other nations. And then they started to be restored, and then, as best as I can tell, they were then conquered by other nations. And now I'm moving off of the chart, and I'm over here in the land that's between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So between the Old Testament and the New Testament is a period of 400 years that we don't have Bible information about, but we do have secular history. And so just like the Persians conquered the Babylonians, it seems to me that after this time period, after the Old Testament, the Greeks came along and conquered the Persians. That's Alexander the Great and all that stuff you learned in history class. Then, after Greek had its period of time as the world power, Rome came along and conquered Greece. And the Roman Empire is the people who are in charge when the New Testament begins. So, you get to the early stories of the New Testament, like the Christmas story, and you see there's Joseph and Mary, and they go to Bethlehem, and they put the baby in the manger. Okay, why did Joseph and Mary go to Bethlehem? And the answer is, because Caesar told them to, because the Roman Empire told them to do that. And if you don't realize that there's years in between the Old and New Testament, you go, it might go, I don't understand. I thought Persia was in charge. And then right after Malachi, boom, next story is Matthew, and Rome is telling them what to do. And so it's important for you to know there's 400 years, and a bunch of stuff happened in between there. And then Rome's in charge at the beginning of the New Testament. So that's the history of this time period. Again, those are just the highlights. There's quite a bit more. But that's the history of this time period. Now, if you're here today and you're a history buff, you might have heard all of this and went, oh, that was so fascinating. Thank you, Mario. And there may be some of you that go, uh, Mario, you said the name of this series was How to Read the Bible. And now that you've explained to me what it's about, I don't want to read the Bible. <laughs> because now you've told me it's about the history of Israel. And why do I want to read about Jewish history? Like, I'm not an Israelite. What does any of that have to do with my life? So now that you've told me, I'm, why am I going to read any of this? And so that's why I want to end this sermon with the theological storyline. What does the book that we call the Old Testament, or the 39 documents that we call the Old Testament, like, what can we get from this that teaches us about God? What is the theological storyline here? Because I think that it's not just what happens with Israel. The story of Israel is Israel relating to a particular God, and that God is the God who created the world, including me and you. We need to know what the Bible reveals about him. So theologically, let's go ahead and go back. A lot of the important stuff is right over here. The Bible begins with God creating the world, and, the first, and he creates humanity, and the first two humans that the Bible mentions, names are Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve are created in a world that is a paradise. It is good. It seems to me it is very, very strongly implied in the book of Genesis that prior to Adam and Eve sinning, there was no hardship, there was no pain, there was no death. It almost sounds like heaven. There's this paradise-like world that God creates, and it is so wonderful. And Adam and Eve rebel against God and disobey him, and they bring sin into the world. This happens on like the third page of the Bible. And this is a very significant historical and theological moment. Scholars call this the fall. When Adam and Eve brought sin into a world that did not have sin in, in it, 
it, it's, scholars call this the fall because what you have is this perfect world no longer perfect, this good world no longer a paradise. Now sin has entered into the picture and God, in reaction to sin, curses the earth. So during the fall, there is a curse that makes the world like the way the world is right now. And so right now we live in a world, and I think it's been ever since this day, that there are problems because now there's death and hardship and pain. Prior to, prior to the fall, there wouldn't have been like fatal car accidents and tornadoes and earthquakes and tsunamis and divorce and betrayal and murder and arson and burglary and lying and gossip. There wouldn't have been all. There wouldn't have been no, there would have been no death, no disaster, no disease, no cancer, no COVID, no fibromyalgia, no back pain. Like all that stuff began here. I've said this before that b- prior to the fall, there were either no tornadoes or tornadoes were fun. One of those two things. I don't know which one. But there was no death and there was no pain and there was no hardship. So either no tornadoes or no fun. I don't know which one. I guess we'll find out one day. But then the fall happens and it creates the world that we live in, which is our world is filled with tons of bad things, tons of painful things. And so if you were to say, what does this story have to do with me? I just want to let you know the problem that the Bible identifies right at the beginning is a problem that still exists to this day in your world. So what do we do about it? I mean, Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse... 17, I'll just read to you. You don't have it in the back. I'm just going to read it. Because you listened to your wife's voice and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. This is God talking. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. Sounds like there, were not, there was not painful labor before this. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. Like there were no thorns and thistles before this. And you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow. Apparently surviving wouldn't have been this sweat of the brow kind of thing before this moment. And until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it, for you are dust, and you will return to dust. And so death begins there too. And so that's the, that's the human condition. That's why this is not just like, well, I'm not an Israelite, so who cares? No, this is about the very world you live in and the very problems that you have. The next significant story after Adam and Eve is the flood. I don't have time to tell you the whole story, but it's pretty famous, and you can look at it, you can Google it if you want. Um, it's the story with Noah, and there's the boat, and there's Noah up in the boat, and there's all the animals in the boat, and everyone else drowns. And for some reason, we consider that a children's story. I don't know why. Um, so all, so the, the people in the world are all evil. The Bible says they are evil, continually evil all the time. And so God wipes out everybody except for these eight people that he shows mercy to, right? So he shows grace to one group of people and he shows judgment to all of these people who sin constantly all the time. And I don't know if this is the point of the story of the flood, but I'll just tell you this is an observation I've noticed. Apparently, killing all the bad people off is not the solution to the problem of sin. Have you ever thought about that before? The solution to the problem of sin is not kill, out, kill off all the bad people, right? Because that happened, right? God whittled the world down to like the eight sort of holiest people. And what happened? They were sinners too. And they continued to sin. And as they multiplied, they multiplied sinners. Like the holiest among us are sinners. So the way to get rid of the problem of sin is not to get rid of all of the sinners. So to wipe out all sinners is not the way like to, uh, to wipe out, like, well, these are the really bad people. I don't know if you've ever, you might not want to confess this because you're in church and you want to look. You want to look decent. But have you, has it ever crossed your mind that like we, this world would be such a better place if we could just get rid of all the bad people? You know, like if you just like rank everybody in the whole world and just get rid of the bottom half, like the, wouldn't the world be so much better? And the answer is no. You'd have the top half and somebody in there would be the worst of those people. 
right? And we'd still be living in a sinful world with sinners who would multiply and make more sinners. Killing all the bad people does not fix the problem of sin. The next story after the Noah story is Abraham. And there's a lot to the Abraham story. I'm just going to focus on two things that God promised to Abraham, though. He speaks to Abraham, and he makes two promises. He says, Abraham, you are going to become a great nation. And he says, all peoples will be blessed through you. And those, I think, are the, probably the two most significant things in the story of Abraham. That God says, you will become a great nation, like your descendants will become a great nation, and that great nation is Israel. I actually said it earlier in the sermon, you should have got that one, okay? <laughs> Israel is the great nation that Abraham, um, his descendants become. Therefore, if you're wondering, well, why is the Old Testament so obsessed with Israel? It's because that's the nation that is the fulfillment of the promise that was made way back at the beginning of the story. The other promise that's made is all peoples will be blessed through you. And the word peoples there seems to mean not the people that came from Abraham. No, there's Abraham's going to have a people. And then there's all the other peoples. And all those other nations are going to be blessed through Abraham somehow. Now, I think at the time they probably had no clue what that meant. But we now know the answer is Jesus. Jesus is the way that all of the other nations were, were blessed through Abraham. And that's an important part of the story, that not only is the Old Testament this fulfillment of the promise that was made to Abraham that well, you'll be a great nation, but the New Testament is the fulfillment of you, through you all of the nations will be blessed. Meaning this idea that God cares not just about Israel, but everybody else, that's not just a New Testament idea. That goes all the way back to the beginning of the story. So, this nation that God promises becomes a nation. They're rescued, like I said, in Exodus. They are rescued from Egypt. They are brought into the promised land in Joshua. They are established in Judges and in First and Second Samuel. Um, and so you have these people who are, they're rescued by God, and, and, but, but yet gratitude for being rescued and gratitude for being brought to the promised land apparently is not enough to take care of the problem of sin either. Right? Their sin is still a problem, even though you have this group of people who I'm sure were very grateful that God rescued them and very grateful that God took them to the promised land. Human gratitude alone is not enough to overcome the power of sin. There's something in our hearts that needs to be changed. And they were also given the law. God gave them the law. And that did not fix the problem of sin. And so this is an important lesson too. <laughs> Clarity about right and wrong is not the solution to the problem of sin. Sometimes people think that. You've met people like this, right? They really Education, if we could just educate the people rightly so that they would know this is true, this is false, this is right, this is wrong, that would fix all the problems in our world. No, there are people that know right and wrong and still do wrong. Clarity about right and wrong is not the solution to the problem of sin. So now you have these people who have the law and they've got their nation and they're going along, and sin still reigns. And they are not a blessing to all the other peoples, like the promise of Abraham would have hinted at. And in fact, they are rather like lots of other peoples in that the fact that they sin, and they are judged, and punished, and conquered, and reconquered. But all along the way, there were pictures of the problem. There's the Genesis story about how the, story be the problem began. There's reminders that sin has not been defeated. There's the reminders that sin needs to be taken care of. All throughout this time period, you have among Israel these priests and a temple and an altar and animal sacrifices 
reminding the people that sin is not over. Sin still has to be dealt with. And they probably really understood this. Every time, like the wages of sin is death is probably something that was very obvious to a Jewish person because some lamb has to die whenever they sin, right? An ox, there's, there's the day of atonement and there's the time where they have to do the thing with the scapegoat and there's the time where they have to bring the lamb. And so they, like, there's just so many times where they're having to deal with like priestly stuff and temple stuff and animal sacrifice stuff because the problem of sin has not been taken care of. And that's, it's helpful, knowing all that is helpful. It preps us for Jesus, because by the time we get to the New Testament and Jesus gives his body as a sacrifice on behalf of the people, I mean, if you don't know the Old Testament, that's kind of weird. Like, why is it that Jesus bleeding, giving his body and, and to the point of death, why is that the thing that causes forgiveness of our sins? It's maybe not even obvious if you just start there. But if you had like a thousand years of this, they're probably going, well, of course there would have to be a sacrifice that like actually works. And forgiveness is not something that we just get like one year at a time or one sacrifice at a time, but it would be forever taken care of. And so this whole time period, sin is not defeated, and pretty much everybody knows that. And the prophets are talking to the, to the nation, and they're reminding them also that there's a, a relational reconciliation that's needed with God, that God is not an impersonal system of rules that they need to tap into, but that he's a person who they've offended and there are times when the prophets even picture Israel like a wayward wife and God as the husband calling them back. And there were even promises of a solution to the problem. Really, one of the earliest promises, and some of them are kind of cryptic, but one of the earliest ones even goes all the way back to Genesis where Adam and Eve were told that one of Eve's descendants or somehow Eve's descendants would crush the serpent that had tempted them. And then by the time you get to Abraham, you have the promise of all the nations will be blessed through you. And by the time you get to David, there's this promise that there will be one who reigns on the throne and the kingdom will last forever. Well, who's that? What is that about? And then by the time you get to Isaiah and Micah, you have these prophecies about like this, uh, this ruler that is going to come and he's going to shepherd the people of Israel. And there's this um, figure that eventually they call the Messiah who's going to come. And there were these prophecies that basically like one day God's going to show up. One day the Lord is going to show up. One day this great king is going to show up from God. He's going to fix everything. He's going to make everything right. And so there was a period of time where they were so they're going, well, there's, one day things are going to be better. One day things are going to get restored. One day God's going to show up or his king is going to show up. And so they started talking about this Messiah. And apparently it was clear enough. The promises were clear enough that hundreds of years later, when the New Testament gets written, there are still Jewish people hanging around waiting for those promises to come true. But the Messiah that shows up, could not be someone who simply grants the Israelites military victory over their enemies and, and kick, gets rid of Persia or, or the Greeks or the Romans or whoever might be in charge at the time. The Messiah couldn't just be someone who gives them military victory over their enemies. They'd already had military victory over their enemies. And that didn't fix the problem of this world. That didn't fix the problem of sin. The Messiah would have to come and not only be their king, he would need to take care of the problem of sin and break the curse that began way back here. And so here's the summary sentence. The Old Testament is the set of documents that prepares us for the greatest story ever told. The coming of the Messiah. And if God permits, we will get to that next week. Let's pray. Thank you.
That's encouraging. And, and thank you, God, for your word. Thank you for pre preparing us. Well, preparing your people for the Messiah. And then as we read it, you like prepare us to understand. Like things in the Bible we wouldn't understand otherwise. And I pray that you would bless in advance. I just ask that you would bless next week. And then we would understand what it means for you to show up here and rescue us. But thank you for giving us the beginning of the story. And help us to be people who, instead of walking around a Star Wars convention completely lost, would be going, okay, this is hard. I don't get it all. But I'm going to try to understand this because I realize the God who is behind this book is my God. The only one there is. And we want to know you. And so I just pray that you would help us to know you. And we thank you for sending Jesus so that we may know you by you taking sin out of the equation, that you would set up things in such a way that you would destroy sin without destroying all of us. We thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.